This morning, as, I, as we turn to the Bible's longest psalm, 176 verses, I have something on my mind as we come to this psalm, and, and this is the thought. People who love God, people who love God's Word, people who long to faithfully follow God still suffer. They suffer, and sometimes to the point of misery. And people who love God and long to follow Him faithfully um, often get sidelined by people, family, friends, sometimes even to the point of being mocked. Has that ever happened to someone you love? Are they living in misery? Are they being mocked for their faith? Has it happened to you? Is it happening to you? It's happened to me. And in this psalm, Psalm 119, God is so kind to acknowledge that many times His people are miserable, and sometimes they do get mocked. And He's gracious to teach us in this psalm what to do when those difficult days come. So would you stand with me as we discover together what this is that he would have us do as we hear together the word of the God who loves us. I have put in your bulletin all of the verses in which the psalmist says, revive me. Now in the ESV it says, give me life, but that's what the word means. Revive me. And so the psalmist says it. It's sprinkled throughout Psalm 119. But when it gets to verses 153 to 160, toward the end, he says it three times. And so we'll read all of those, but we're going to focus our attention on that eight-verse passage, 153 to 160. Hear the word of the Lord. My soul clings to the dust Give me life according to your word. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Behold, I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Give me life in your steadfast love. Give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. I'm severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated as I pray. And Father, that is our prayer this morning. Revive us. Give us life. 
according to your word, we languish at times as your people, Father. And I'm so grateful that you have given us uh, ways to express our hearts in the middle of our languishing, in the middle of what feels like death. You give us a prayer that says, give me life, revive me. And we ask that, even this morning, we're thinking about revive us according to your word. And now we're going to listen to your word and hear it preached. And we ask that as we do this, you would revive us. You would give us life in Jesus because he's who we find in these pages. Thank you for him. We ask in his name. Amen. know who you are, Mountain Fellowship. You are men and women and boys and girls who love God, who love His Word, who long to faithfully follow Him. How do I know this? Well, there's evidence. You show up here (laughs) Sunday after Sunday after Sunday because you love Him and you love His Word. You could be doing something else, but here you are. And it's also because in the short three and a half years that I've got to know you and your stories, I've heard your love for God in your voices. I've seen it in your faces. I've witnessed it in your worship and in your service. You are people who love God and love his word. Your light this one who wrote Psalm 119. Your heart cries with his, as he said in verse 10, which we didn't read. He says, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. That sounds like Mountain Fellowship to me. But some of you are also like this pain-stricken poet. Um... When he cried out, I'm severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Look on my affliction and deliver me. I know that some of you are afflicted. I know some of what's going on in your lives. And it seems like to me as I hear from you that sometimes you just can't seem to catch a break. Just when one of your afflictions goes out the back door, the next one in line comes in the front door. It just seems to never, never, ever stop. You're doing all you can to hang on, to trust God, to remain faithful to him. But sometimes it just seems like the misery multiplies and the drudgery drags on. The psalmist... He understands. And some of you can relate to the persecution that this poet experienced because he pursued God and godliness. You understand when he cries, plead my cause and redeem me. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. You are not swerving from God's word. 
You're trying to be faithful to him, and yet someone close to you accuses you of being a hypocrite and less than a true believer. I've heard you say it. I know it's happening. And some of your bosses and coworkers don't take your faith very seriously. Some of you students, um, you love Jesus and you love the Bible. But some of your friends think it's a stupid thing to do that. They, they don't get it. And they give you a hard time because you're a Christian. Call you whatever. You know, back in my day it was goody two-shoes. But they make fun of you because you want to follow Jesus. And even here in the buckle of the Bible Belt, we're more and more aware, aware that to tell someone you're a Christian may incite suspicion from them more than it inspires confidence in you. And so like our poet friend this morning, we, we just want to love God and live for him but we feel afflicted and we fear accusation. And what are his options at this point, honestly? What, what are his options? What could he do? How could he respond to uh, the hurt and the hate that he's experienced? Well, the verses we've read reveal the choices before him. He could become like the wicked in verse 155 and simply not seek the word of God. That should take care of some of his problems. In verse 157, he says that he had the option to swerve away from God's word, to veer off of God's path. That's an option. In 158, though, he decides that it would disgust him to become faithless and not keep God's commands. He can't imagine going down the path of forgetting God and becoming faithless. In another place, in verse 136, he said it this way, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your word. It breaks his heart to think of ever leaving the path that's paved with the precepts of God. It, it breaks his heart. It makes him shed streams of tears that others would do it, and therefore that he would ever think of doing that. And yet, still, taking God at his word has not taken away all the hurt that he experiences. Having a growing love for God's word has only intensified the hate that he experiences. So what did he choose? What did he do? Swerve away from God's word? Or lean into it? And he chose to lean into the word of God. He said, revive me according to your word. I feel like I'm dying here, God, and I need you to give me life. Over and over again, he says in these verses, give me life according to your word, according to your promise, according to your rulings, your decisions. And friends, we have that same choice. When we suffer as people who love God, we can choose to say... How can God's word be true when he lets me suffer like this? 
How can it be worth it to believe God in His Word when people sideline me for it and even mock me for it? What's going on here? Why would I keep going back to the Bible if the God of the Bible doesn't take away the pain in my life? And on top of that, He lets me be persecuted for trusting Him. As I thought about that question, I thought of this, but doesn't everyone suffer? Doesn't every person, no matter what they believe about God, what they believe about the Bible, don't they all experience affliction and pain and loss and misery? Well, that's part of the human experience. And another part of the human experience is that you may get sidelined or mocked or rejected. And it doesn't have to be for believing in God or believing in the Bible. It can be for anything. Welcome to the cancel culture. You could be sidelined and mocked for anything, even if you're not a believer. As the saying goes, haters going to hate. Someone will hate you for something. And so, aren't affliction and accusation just part of the human experience? Yeah, I think we could agree that is true. And so I wondered, what if we interviewed this psalmist on the street? And we stuck a microphone in his face and we asked him and we said, so why would you keep believing in God in the Bible if it doesn't take away your suffering but only adds to it? What? What's the point? Why would you do that? And he would say, because it tells the truth. What? Because it tells the truth. And in Psalm 160, uh, verse 160, at the very end of the passage we're looking at, he says, the sum of your word is truth. And he says to the interviewer who looks confused, he goes, look, the Bible tells it like it is. The Bible tells us that because we live in a broken world, we will hurt. Suffering is real. The Bible tells the truth about that. The Bible tells us that because we are broken and turned in on ourselves, we will hate and will be hated. Hate is real. The Bible's very honest about that. The interviewer says, well, okay, but everyone knows hurt and hate are part of the human experience. The Bible isn't saying something we don't already know. And our friend says, oh, but it is. Because the Bible is saying that there's more that's true besides human suffering and human selfishness. There's more that's true. Interviewer says, okay, I'll, I'll bite. What else is true? And our friend says, it's, it's not what else is true. It's who. It's not something else that's true. It's someone who's true. And then he, he says to the interviewer, he says, listen, listen. You and your world, assuming this guy came from our time back then, you folks in your world, you ride trains uh, sometimes, and sometimes those trains go through dark tunnels. Um, and when you're in a dark tunnel, you, you can't see where you're going. You don't know what's going on around you. Um, but you rest because you trust the engineer. You trust that there is one, and you trust that he's going to get you to where you're supposed to go. 
He'll take care of you in the meantime. You, you trust that he has the wisdom and the character and the desire to get you where you need to go. That's why I need God's word, he says, so that I know who the engineer is, and I know his character, I know his wisdom, I know his desire. You see, this man loves the word of God because it tells him the truth about the God who is with him when things go dark. It tells him the truth about the God who is with him when he's hurting who's with him when he's being hated. And so the question is, what, what is it that he hears about the heart of God in the word of God that gives him life in the middle of this tunnel of death? And he tells us two things. In verse 153, the psalmist says, God's word tells him that God is the God who sees his affliction and will keep his promise to deliver them deliver him. And then in the rest of this section, 154 to 159, the psalmist tells him that God's word tells him that God is the God whose mercy outnumbers his accusers, whose grace is greater than his guilt. So we'll look at those two things and then we'll, we'll be done. We'll go to the table. First, God's word tells us that this God is the God who sees our affliction and will keep his promise to deliver us. In verse 153, he says, look on my affliction and deliver me. That means rescue me, pull me out, for I do not forget your law. So when has God done this before? When has God looked on affliction and delivered? Where would, where would you go to hear about this? Well, you would go to what the Hebrews called the Torah, the books of Moses, and that's what he says when he says, I do not forget your law. He uses the word Torah. You would go to the books of Moses to find out when God has looked on affliction and delivered his people. In our uh, men's Bible study that I'm part of on Thursday nights, we have been reading in Exodus, and we were just in Exodus 3, and the story of Moses and the plagues on Egypt Listen to what Exodus 3, which is part of the Torah of God, says. It says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And I love this. Listen to this. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. God knew. And then in the next chapter, out of the burning bush, Moses heard the voice of God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. Now, 
That's what you find out about God when you read his word. You find out that he's the God who hears and remembers and sees and knows your misery. And on this side of the cross, we know that God has heard the cry of his people who are enslaved to their sin and chained to suffering and death. And he sent Jesus, the true and better Moses, who went head to head with the God of this world. He defeated sin and Satan on the cross. He broke the chains of suffering and death in his glorious resurrection from the grave. And he's led his people through the cross into resurrection life. And one day he will bring them into the good and broad land of the new heaven and the new earth. Where there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. No more misery. Only this book tells us about that God, about that Jesus. He is more real than everything you suffer. But what about our accusers? Well, that's the second thing God's Word tells us about God. He tells us that God is the God whose mercy outnumbers our accusers, whose grace is greater than our guilt. So, uh, verses 149, I mean, 154 to 159 takes us into the scene of a courtroom where the psalmist now is on trial and the haters are piling on the accusations against him. Many, he says, are my persecutors. Many are my adversaries. And friends, there will be many who think we're fools for following Jesus, who see us sin and hear us use our words to hurt others. And they call us out for our prejudices and our love of money and our lack of compassion. And they, for good reason, will call us hypocrites. The evidence is against us. We have many adversaries. We have Satan, whose name means adversary, and who the Bible calls the accuser of God's people. And he will whisper to us, how can you call yourself a Christian after what you did? How can you call yourself a Christian when you think those thoughts about those people? How can you... Call yourself a Christian when you speak to your wife and kids the way you do. How can you call yourself a Christian when you have so little interest in worshiping God or serving others or anything that has to do with Him? If only people knew what you've done. If only it was plastered on the news. <laughs> Christian. Right. And we not only have those accusations, but our own hearts accuse us again and again and again. It's what made the psalmist cry out three times in the courtroom, revive me, give me life. These accusations are going to kill me. Plead my cause, God. Plead my case. Redeem me. Give me life according to your word. 
Let your word be the judge, God. But, but wait a second. <laughs> Isn't that dangerous? If you put me on the stand and the prosecutor is the word of God, I'm done. Aren't you? If anyone has a right to be my accuser, it's God. In fact, he knows more of my record than anyone else, than even me. And in his word, his law, he's written all of the charges against me. Do I really want God's justice? Well, thank God, in verse 156, he says, Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. And, and this is rules. This is actually rulings, decisions, judgments, decisions God the judge has made. He says, give me life according to your judgments. Well, that's odd because it seems like his judgments would kill us, not give us life. Because his rulings would be against us. How can sinners find mercy and life in the rulings of God against us? Well, we go back to what my brothers and I are reading in Exodus on Thursday nights. We go back to the Torah. In the plagues against Egypt, we see God bringing judgment against sinners, right? And in the last plague, the angel of death taking the life of the firstborn of every household, even God's people, Israel are subject to the judgment that their sin deserves, death. The angel of death will come to their houses too. But God in his mercy provides a way of escape from his judgment. You know the story. He tells them, take the spotted lamb, adopt it into your family. And at the time when I tell you, slaughter it, take its blood and paint it on the top and sides of your door, and when the angel of death comes, he will see the blood applied to your house, and he will pass over your house and spare the life of your firstborn. And so, <laughs> that too becomes God's judgment. God's ruling is, I see blood forgiven, pass over, no death. That becomes the ruling of God. And so for everyone who put their faith in God's plan to save them from his wrath, the ruling of God was not judgment but mercy. And friends, we know, we know, we celebrate it every week. Jesus was that lamb. Jesus is our verdict. The psalmist said, many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but great is your mercy. Many and great, it's the same word. Many are my persecutors and many are your mercies. Great and powerful are my persecutors, but great is your mercy, God. There may be many accusations against you, and they may all be right. But the one who knows every accusation against you and has every right to judge you has shown you mercy by providing the blood of a lamb to cover you 
so that his judgment passes over you. Because of Jesus, your verdict, if you trust him, is mercy. And this provision for you comes from the heart of the God who loves you. He says in 159, give me life according to your steadfast love. So God's word tells us that God is the God whose love for us is steadfast. And therefore, his mercy outnumbers our accusers and his grace is greater than our guilt. So since all of this is true, because the sum of the word is truth, then friends, when you're on the train and it goes into that dark tunnel of physical and relational suffering, don't listen to those little G gods who will come up to you in your seat and say, hey, look, look, it's dark. We don't know where we're going. We can't see anything. Either there's no engineer on this thing, because who would take us through a tunnel like this? Either there's no engineer, or the engineer's not worth uh, trusting. Let's get out. Come, Come with me. Let's get out. That's, that's what it would mean to go to other people or your positions or your possessions or whatever it is and say, give me life, revive me, give me life, give me life. It's like jumping off the train instead of trusting the engineer in the middle of a dark tunnel. And our poet friend would say, don't go there. Don't swerve off track. Listen to the word of God and love it. It will tell you the truth about Jesus. Jesus is God's word to you in your darkness. He came to you, for you, wrapped in flesh, lying in a manger, dying on a cross, rising from the dead. Jesus is God's word, whispering to you in the darkness of your pain, I see, I see your affliction. I hear your groaning. I remember my promise to be your God. And I have come to deliver you from the sin and death that make you groan. And I will come again to make you and all things completely new. Listen, listen to me. And Jesus is God's word shouting in the darkness. Louder than the voices of all of your accusers. You are forgiven. You are covered by my blood. You are not guilty. You are righteous in me. Why? Because there's more mercy in me than there is sin in you. And why would I do such a thing? Because I love you. Because I love you. Oh, Father, help us. Help us when things get dark to cry out, revive me according to your word. And help us to go to your word and to see Jesus there and hear him whisper in our pain and shout down our persecutors. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.